Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. If you're over 35, your enzyme levels tend to drop. That's right. They, of course, are the workhorses of digestion. Enzyme allow us to break down our food into the macro and micronutrients that we then absorb. Research shows that by the time someone hits 65, their saliva and pancreatic secretions, both of which are involved in the enzymatic activity, have declined by as much as 50%. The decline creates symptoms, sometimes in chronic indigestion. It can even be associated with nutritional issues. I'm a fan of enzyme supplementation. Particularly, I've found my friends at BioOptimizers and their Massozymes as effective. Massozymes is a complete potent digestive enzyme with over 102% more protease than their nearest competitor and 3 to 500% more per serving than most of the popular brands. It's crucial because protein, of course, is one of the most important macronutrients to break down Left undigested, well, you don't get to utilize those nutrients. Massozyme contains not only more protease, it contains 13 additional enzymes, including a lipase for fat digestion, and it works at every pH level from 2 to 12, in other words, at every stage of digestion. All of this makes Massozyme a great complement to any healthy diet. You can watch as Massozyme dissolves raw steak when you go to massozymes.com slash drew. Just like it sounds, M-A-S-S-Z-Y-M-E-S dot com slash Drew. And you can try it today risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee, the gold standard in the industry. If you don't feel the masses I'm helping, you can go to their support team, and they will give you a no-question-asked refund. Finally, if you go to massesimes.com, be sure to enter the coupon code DrDrew10 to receive a 10% discount off your order. The deal is limited while quantities last. That is massesimes.com. Hey, everybody. It's the Dr. Drew Podcast, of course. Uh, be sure to catch more at drdrew.com. It's all there. Don't forget After Dark. And do sign up at drdrew.tv where you can uh, – we'll give you a blast if uh, we start doing one of our Q&A live shows on the weekend, which you tend to do. I want to get right to my guest. It's one of my very favorite, Indre Viscontis. I've asked her back because I geeked out last time she was here and uh, overlooked completely her book, which is what she came to talk about. So thank you for putting up with that, and thank you for coming back. Oh, thanks so much for having me again. The book is How Music Can Make You Better. Uh, Inquiring Minds is her podcast. It's one of my very favorites. Uh, it, it, but you'll, you know, If you want listen to her last podcast here with me, you'll get a sense of why I so enjoy listening to her interview, Interesting People. Available also another podcast, Cadence. Is that the music one? Yeah, that's how music can, what music can tell us about the mind. Ooh, I have not got that one yet. That's a new one. You can uh, find out more at Indre, I-N-D-R-E, Viscontis, V-I-S-K-O-N-T-A-S dot com. She's published more than 50 papers and chapters relating to things like the neural basis of memory and creativity. A recent study you did on uh, creativity and people with neurodegeneration. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, you know, there's this weird finding where sometimes when you lose language abilities, you kind of get this obsessive need to create visual art. So I was really interested in what it was about these patients' brains that were kind of pushing them towards painting and making sculptures. And, That's interesting. You know, yeah. So I've seen a bunch of Alzheimer's patients who have music left over long after language and, and even sort of self-functions are gone. 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's another really interesting way of looking at what happens in neurodegeneration. I mean, these people can't communicate anymore because they've basically lost just even conceptual knowledge and access to memories. But, you know, music is so um, multiply represented in the brain and um, especially familiar music. We can, you know, track how in Alzheimer's disease, that's one part of the brain that actually doesn't seem to deteriorate at least as quickly. And so they retain it for much longer. And the thing that I love about those uh, moments when you can really connect with a patient like that who maybe has been mute for a while is that you just see them light up. You see like their own self come back into their eyes. You know what I mean? Yes, because self-deterioration is a big part of the syndrome. Yeah, exactly. And so, but music kind of taps into kind of the core of who we are in a lot of ways, right? It's like, it can be our earliest memories. It's so tied to our emotions. You know, we we often define ourselves by the music we listen to in our teenage years. And, you know, it helps us find our new tribe as we separate from the family unit. So it's such a powerful way of like connecting back to your past. And that's why I think it's so powerful in Alzheimer's disease. And so is that one of the themes and music can make you better? Yeah, so the book is kind of divided up into three parts. The first part is just really what is music, because we often think that it's this tangible thing, but really it's just something our brains do with sound. (laughs) Because you and I can listen to the same sound wave and have very different subjective experiences. I mean, I might think it's the most sublime music, and you might think it's total drivel. Hmm. Um, So, you know, it's not in the sound wave, it's in how our minds interpret it. And then the second part is really about what most people think the book is about, which is how music can make us better, whether it's when we have a brain injury, like when Gabby Giffords, for example, was shot in the head and she, you know, had a kind of broke as aphasia. She, she couldn't uh, pr- produce language, produce speech. And music was a way of helping her rewire her right hemisphere, which was intact, to take over some of the language functions. Um, so that's How did of- they do that? That's fascinating. Yeah, so it's called melodic intonation therapy. Wow. And basically, yeah, you do this thing where you 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 tap along to a beat. This is a music music type of music therapy. You tap along to a beat and at the same time you kind of teach a person um, a phrase that they want to say using a melody. So you might say, I love you. And it's very simple. And essentially, what what's happening in a lot of these patients is that the music, the melodic, the pr- prosody um, of language is retained in their right hemisphere. So, you know, there's even this great video um, of Gabby Giffords basically not being able to pronounce the word light on demand. But then she starts singing this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And she says that, the, that, you know, light over and over and over again, perfectly well in the context of the song. So, melodic intonation therapy basically harnesses that ability by teaching you to sing the phrases that you want to say. And this is this is a cool part, uh, Drew. That that so you know on the left ha- side of the brain where you're for most people that's where language is lateralized. Right. We have these two regions, Broca's and Wernicke's. So Broca's is where you produce language. Wernicke's is where you understand language. And there's this tract of fibers uh, called the arcuate fasciculus, mm-hmm. one of my favorite uh, names, mm-hmm. uh, that that joins the two. And so you need that tract to basically take what you comprehend what you what you want to say and turn it into a motor uh, command and, and say it so on the right side of the brain for most of us that tract is really pretty thin it's not really well developed compared to the left side uh, which we use all the time in language but in melodic intonation therapy what we see is essentially a thickening of that tract we see uh, it, that tract being rewired on the right side of the brain to take over some functions like so awesome and yet it's not I, i'm just trying to figure out what what the language is 
lack of a better word, meaning to the person singing it. For, for instance, she sings about the light. Does she know what a light is? Or do, if she points and then sings, she kind of knows she's singing about the thing she's pointing to? Or does she actually develop a Broca's type sense of words? Yeah. So, so in most of these patients that where it's most effective, as, as far as I understand, it's, it's in people who have like non-fluent aphasia. So they, they, they want, they have halting speech. So they want to get the words out. They know what the words mean. Their comprehension is intact. They just can't actually produce the words that they're hearing in their Got head. It. And so that's, yeah. So that's when it works the best because if they can sing it, then See, that, group, you know, that group usually has repetition intact too. Exactly. So you yeah, could exactly. say, you know, the grass is green and the sky is blue, and they can repeat it back perfectly. And you say, what color is that? And they'll be like, but four, four, three, four. <laughs> yeah, like- right, right, right. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, and, and the re- repetition is actually involves that arcuate fasciculus. Yep. Uh, yep. Yeah, so. Yep. Cool. <laughs> Very interesting stuff. Uh, tell me more. Oh, I forgot. So, so the third part of the book is the part that is much more speculative. And it's essentially how music can heal or help or even hurt society. What? So I kind of, yeah. So I talk a little bit about kind of maybe some thoughts about why music uh, evolved. And, you know, I kind of uh, come to the conclusion that we can sort of, it's easier to think about it as a tool like fire. And, you know, what did fire do for us? Well, it allowed us to cook our food so that we could, you didn't have to spend all our time foraging. We could spend our time, you know, developing civilization. So in the same way, like you can think of music as a tool to help us kind of exchange emotional um, ideas or things that maybe language falls short on, or even before as we're learning language, you know, music is a, is a tool that we can use to actually learn language. Like when you hear, you know, babies learning language, they're, they're not, you know, they're babbling, they're making sounds that, you know, before they really say the words, before they know the meaning of it. Um, but then also there's this whole literature on the role of oxytocin, you know, the attachment hormone and um, and in, in human bonding and the fact that music raises levels of oxytocin and that, you know, I kind of speculate as to how this, what effect this might have, why like there are sometimes like, it's not just that you don't like a particular kind of music, but you hate it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And just like oxytocin makes you feel closer to people that you love, it makes you aggressive towards people that you think are going to, you know, harm the people that you love. And so I think that's why some people can have a, a visceral negative reaction to music oxytocin um, yeah you know I, I know sue carter and if, if i hear one more prairie vole reference i'm gonna scream <laughs> and and even and even she says that it's been over overdone you know what i mean totally and, yeah I, totally yeah, yeah i totally agree and i you know and and so it's not like a, a full explanation but oxytocin has a, plays some really interesting roles in it music. is interesting like, yeah as, like, as long here, as people, another one. people yeah. understand it in a context of a complex system it's That's a, right. Yeah. It's just one part of a yeah. complex system, and yeah. and it's a driver. Like for example, you know, you know when. Uh when you're bouncing to a beat in synchrony with someone else, that's a, a really great driver of oxytocin levels. And if you like, if you if you spray oxytocin, people synchronize them their movements to the beat better. Mm. So you can like you can like snort up, you know, beat. Okay. <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> so it could be a whole new trend. Yeah. <laughs> I beat 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 addicts yeah like yeah like well, yeah like you know if you don't have any rhythm well oh just maybe you need to you know spray well, some that's an interesting treatment i could i could take a dose <laughs> Uh, and it, it also occurs to me that uh, mim- mim- mimesis must play a big role in there too because that also brings up oxytocin that, that sense of communion around mimicry and beat that sort of makes sense exactly to me. that makes sense yeah 
So, so yeah. I, I, I was just thinking, you know, looking at your pedigree, I was thinking about one of the pods you did on Inquiring Minds. You talked about the importance, I forget what it was t- entitled, but it was about generalist versus subspecialist mm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I look at your pedigree, master's in opera, PhD in cognitive science, BS in psychology and French literature. I, I mean, you're, you, you embody generalism, right? Yeah, I mean, totally. That was uh, David Epstein. Uh, from we were we were covering his book Range. He's one of my uh, favorite writers, and I was so thrilled to read his book. He wrote another book called The Sports Gene. You might have uh, heard about where he sort of you know talks about genes and 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 athleticism and everything. And anyway, in Range, he really talks about how that a lot of the really best athletes started out as generalists. And now in society, we have this kind of push to specialize really early, which which may not be the best thing ultimately, um, because it doesn't set you apart later on. And you don't just develop a whole bunch of foundational skills, you become really, you know, a specialist um, and inflexible. And, and so, yeah, so that that book really resonated with me, because I've always had these these this kind of wide range of interests and everyone's always told me, you know, you need to specialize, you need to pick one. And I've just resisted because I never felt like that was really me. Um, So now I feel vindicated. You're right. And do you feel like you've been able to apply that sort of holistic approach now? Yeah, I mean, much more so than in the past. And I should say, though, that it took me a long time. I mean, it's not like I could just, you know, switch from one to another. Even when I started thinking about how to apply neuroscience to make me a better singer, or, you know, how does my artistic background make me a better neuroscientist? Like, it's not it's not obvious. Like, it took years for me to really figure out what those connections are and how to use them effectively. Um, so, you know, there's that side of it. I think that sometimes it, it takes longer for you to become the expert if you have more than one field that you're kind can, of working can in. Can you put words to that? Because I'm almost wondering if it's just not the subjective experience of delight that you get to have in having all these different insights simultaneously, really. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a big part of it. But like, for, like I'll give you an example. I just gave a lecture today to um, some students at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music uh, on how to kind of strategize their practice to make it more effective. And the, there are things that I know from their experiences, uh, from having them myself, that that really resonate with them. That I think if I didn't have a background in performing, it would be really hard for me to right. sort of see those insights. You know right, what I mean? Right. Um, so give us yeah, an example, so, just for fun. Okay, so for example, um, let's say you're in a masterclass setting, and uh, you know this. Is, I, this most is, people, including myself, doesn't nec- don't necessarily know what that means. Oh, okay, yeah. So, okay, so the setting is um, a masterclass is when you're, you know, super famous hero or heroine in your field, like you know, you're a cellist and Yo Yo Ma is coming into town, and uh, he's going to give a masterclass, which means that in front of the public, he's going to hear a couple of students and then critique their work, and you know, so it's kind of like a way of of seeing how how the person works. Um, so this is usually a big deal for musicians because not only do they get to meet their you know hero, the super famous a successful musician in their field. Um, they also get to play for them and, you know, get their advice. And it's usually in front of an audience full of donors, you know, people who could have a real impact on their life, get them a scholarship, you know, get them the next connection. So the mm-hmm. stakes are really high. And if you go into that setting and you have, you know, a fixed mindset where you believe that talent is something that you're born with and you have a certain amount of, um, you, you know, what, what we see, in, even in terms of sort of brain activity, not directly in this 
case, but from other studies of fixed mindset is that, you know, you really focus on the emotions that you're feeling when you're being criticized, rather than the content of the criticism. Hmm. And so and so, you know, you get, you know, so of course, he's going to criticize you. That's his job. He's being paid big money to stand up there and tell you what you're doing wrong. (laughs) And if all you're focusing on is, oh, my goodness, my, you know, hero is telling me how bad I am. And that feels really bad. And now I'm embarrassed and ashamed. And, you know, what we see is that, you know, it's like, you just don't remember uh, the actual constructive criticism. Now, Seems you like you shouldn't even get up there if that's how you're going to feel. But a lot of people feel that way, especially people who were who had success early, prodigies, uh, right? I mean, you know, you're in LA, you're yeah. filled, you know, surrounded by people who are these young kids who are like, you know, the 10-year-old opera singer is a great example. Yeah. Well, so few of those actually ever end up having a career um, because they don't know how to take criticism and they don't know how to practice because they everything's just been kind of bestowed upon them. So anyway, so so let's say then you go, you go onto that stage and you have a growth mindset and you really, you know, embody this idea that effort is a path to mastery, not a sign of weakness. Because when we talk about talent, you know, when you when it boils down to it, people think talent is something that you can do without trying, right? So if right. you have to put the effort in, it means that you're not talented. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, which is totally backwards, uh, because of course it's the effort that you put in that eventually gets you where you want to be. So, so in this masterclass setting now, if you bring a growth mindset, like it can be a really great experience and you can get all this great information out of it. But so I kind of talked to them about, you know, things like that. And I think that if I hadn't been in a masterclass setting myself, I might not have realized what huge, uh, what, hu- what a huge effect, like just your mindset can have on the actual experience. I, I'm surprised that the, that musicians are that sensitive, sensitive in that setting. I, I have a son who's a musician and he, you know, was in a conservatory for a while and went through the whole whiplash type training. And it seems uh-huh. like they get beat up so much. I'm surprised that they're they're they're, they're not just expecting it. Yeah, I mean that there is a, that big a part of it, but you know, I think uh, and so and, and it depends on the instrument too. Like some um, some in, instruments are are like they're they're just the the culture is is more about just kind of constantly being criticized and and working on it. Um, and then there are others where you know that's less part of the culture. And so yeah, I think it just in, in, it, particular yeah. instruments. You like like yeah. So in voice, for example, yeah. uh, I think there's it, there's less of a you know. It, it's it, there's a kind of more overt support for uh, others. It's not like you know if, if you if you go and do a master class or or a studio class with a bunch of singers, like they'll clap and they'll be supportive of each other um, for the most part uh, before they start like. It's you all know, just trashing. it's all just being passive aggressive. As soon as the lights turn out, <laughs> yeah, they start talking sure. talking for crap sure. about each other. So yeah. it's just a different mode. Yeah, but if you bring in a bunch of violinists, I feel like, you know, they're, 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 yeah, maybe it's because they sort of, I don't know. Yeah, I, no, I, violinists, you know, they're just overtly aggressive. That's all. <laughs> the singers are <laughs> passive aggressive. It's hysterical. Oh, that's really funny. Uh, all right. So tell me more about how music can make you better, right? Because this is, this is what I'm here to talk about. And, I, and I, I'm just so s- stunned by your training in music that it's as, as exceptional as your neuroscience training. And that, that's, those are two crazy difficult fields to master, quite oh, literally. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and, and I, I just love the fact that you have both, and I just and, th- and that you've written a book. And tell me more about it. What else can I learn? From yeah, you? well, so let's talk about the Mozart effect, right? Which right. you've probably heard about is yep. this idea that you know listening to Mozart is going to make you smarter. 
Uh, there's a whole industry of baby Einstein products uh, that, you know, are marketed towards uh, sleep deprived parents who just want smart kids. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, there's this notion that there's something fundamentally better about Mozart's music in terms of, um, you know, helping you achieve uh, academically than any other kind of music. Uh, and so I talk a little bit about that, debunk that myth. First off, uh, you know, the original paper published in 1993 was this short little letter. Uh, it was actually a research done down at UC Irvine. And basically what they did is they took undergraduate students and they divided them up into three conditions. Um, each of the three conditions, each of the three groups were going to do a bunch of IQ tests at the end of it. And uh, the three conditions were the first one was they would listen to a Mozart piano sonata for 15 minutes, and then they'd go do these IQ tests. The second condition was they would listen to a bunch of relaxation tapes and then do the tests, or the third mm -hmm. was they would sit in silence for 15 minutes. Uh -huh. So, uh, which group do you think did better? <laughs> uh, I, they probably were all kind of the same. Well, no. So, the Mozart group did a lot better because you know how boring it is to sit oh. in silence for 15 <laughs> okay, minutes, fair right? Enough, fair enough. Right? Like, relaxation tapes, you're just going to want to take a, you know, go take a nap. I mean, like well, a chocolate bar would be more effective. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> right? For sure. So, 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 yeah. So, that initial study just showed basically, yes, there's this effect and then people kind of blew it out of proportion and, and it turned out that it's really an arousal effect. The fact mm -hmm. that, you know, like you can get the same effect whether you're reading a Stephen King, you know, a chapter from a Stephen King novel or you're listening to a pop song. Um, so, so this idea that you can passively listen to Mozart and it'll make you smarter just doesn't, is not supported by the literature. But what does seem to have some evidence supporting it is that, you know, participatory music making, actually learning to play a musical instrument, whether it's, you know, voice or something else, um, does seem to have some, uh, sort of ability to transfer across domains. So that's like kind of the holy grail, like anybody who wants to do brain training games or, you know, wh whatever it is that they want to do, they don't want to just get better at the games that they're playing or you know you don't want to just necessarily get better at playing your instrument you want to just get smarter overall right <laughs> well but i mean but musical training is requires so much concentration and repetition and discipline all these other epi phenomenon that are also important in academic performance Exactly. And so that's what that's what the findings show is that, you know, and but there's a sudden sort of second aspect to it, which is that it's music can be very motivating, you know, and we see uh, a lot of activation of reward circuitry when you're listening to music that you really love. Um, and so it can be a powerful kind of motivator. And so it's a way of kind of helping you learn to focus, learn to do your due diligence, learn to kind of work and uh, improve that is rewarding. And People so conflate the reward circuitry a little bit too. So do you know specifically what they're talking about? Because, you know, there's different, you know, the ventral tegmental input into the shell, of the nucleus accumbens is a little different than the core of the nucleus accumbens. And then an endorphin phenomenon is highly reinforcing as well. And the feel good piece of that is different than the do it again part of the yeah. mesolimbic reward apparatus and so which part are we talking for about sure so yeah. we, i mean we could talk I mean, you know the reward circuitry of course in music is going to be uh, activated in under different conditions right yeah. so if we're talking about music that gives you the chills that's usually the kind of experience that uh where the reward pathway is most studied okay. uh, because you could get a physiological response like so the chills are like when you get you know that that feeling of shivers you know essentially sympathetic yeah. nervous system activation oh, it's really it's awe it's what it is oh yeah. right yeah. right um so and but we can you know we can measure that in terms of respiration depth in terms of heart rate in terms of galvanic skin response we can exactly track okay here's when you got the chills yeah. and so 
when people get the chills uh, from music, for one thing, there's often uh, certain features of the music that is similar. So it's not usually up-tempo music. It's usually sort of a ballad. There's usually a, a kind of treble voice coming out of a cacophony of other sounds. So think guitar solo, think, you know, soprano, Whitney Houston, and I Will Always Love You. Um, or uh, the most famous piece or the most most uh, commonly uh, referred to piece giving people the chills is Barber's Adagio for Strings, which just that has this like slow, long, meandering uh, kind of melody. And, you know, you can listen to this once and you know where it, it wants to go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, hope, uh, I hope you address so, whatever, whatever so, yeah. that means. So, yeah. So, I mean, right? well, exactly. But it's like basically, you know, it's going to, you know, your, your, uh, the music, is, it wants to resolve, right? Yeah. It's creating tension. Yes. And it wants to resolve. Uh, so, so back got, to the tonic, you know, so. tonic key. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and the Adagio for Strings eventually gets there. And when it does, you know, people often get the chills. And, uh, and so, and that's a nice uh, example of, of what we see in the reward circuitry, because what, what we see is that, you know, dopamine levels are going to be higher in the caudate nucleus, which, you know, as you know, is, is we can call it kind of the wanting part of the reward pathway, right? So it's, the, you know, that's, yeah, so it's, it's uh, you know, so it's essentially tracking I, I always the think of it as, of I, I always think of it as sort of the get ready to move part of the brain. Like get ready to do uh-huh. something. Yeah, that's a kind of the way I think about happening, it. Because something's happening, Yeah, something's right? happening like when an, you get it's ready. It's anticipating. Yeah, yeah, get, get ready. ready. Get yeah. ready, exactly. Anticipatory. Yeah. Um, and then when you actually get the chills, you see the spike in the nucleus accumbens, which, that's you the, know, yeah. you can tell us what the nucleus accumbens Well, I, I, I really believe that's the part that says, do that again. Uh-huh. It, it's like, do, do that again, Daddy. It feels good. I, it do, but it feels good is something totally different. But yeah. just do that again. Do that again is to my to my way I've experienced all this stuff. I think people make too much of the feel-good part of dopamine, it's probably more endorphin-mediated, and the nucleus accumbens mm-hmm. is just saying, do that again. Yeah, So, and we do see the endorphin, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, release that happens around this time too, right? So that's, yeah, the, yeah the sort of liking part. But, yes. um, liking but yeah, there's versus that kind wanting, of the, right. Sorry, right. yeah, liking versus wanting. Yeah. So, but uh, so anyway, so so we, we can track that. And and uh, this is what I find really interesting, too, is that in music, like, you know, the more you have that buildup of tension, uh, you know, the better that that release is yes, <laughs> that everybody yes. knows basically in anything that's a motivated behavior. Um, so so that's, you know, so that's part of it. So I would say, like, you know, that that is in terms of the actual musical piece having an effect on your reward circuitry. But I just think there's so many other ways in which music is fun and, you know, where, you know, you can get sort of tangible rewarding results and so that's the more general aspect of, of why it's a it's a way to motivate you right it's going to be much more complicated than just this one little experience of you know getting the chills it wasn't it schopenhauer that thought it was the ultimate artistic form it- yeah you know yeah you kind of hear that uh I, I don't know i don't know that i would say that that's that i would agree with that well i so think I th- my sense of when i i read a, i can't barely remember it but i read a little bit about what he was saying and my sense of it that the temporality of music had deep importance to him mm-hmm. not just the performative aspects but that it's it combined time into you know in, in a way fine art is sort of freezing time this is using and expanding and sort of uh, uh, surfing on time in a way yeah, uh, definitely playing with time. I mean, yeah. people have the experience of time going by more quickly when they have music. That's why we use it to work out, right? Yeah. It makes time pass. But also time expanding. You know, if you go in, and into a concert hall or, you know, one of your one of your favorite bands, like just they can just feel like there can be a moment where just time stands still. And I think that's really interesting, too. 
Glutadose Wellness, innovative supplement containing glutathione. Glutathione is a powerful antioxidant. It's in most cells in our body. It plays a key role in supporting the immune system and, of course, keeping us healthy. Due to aging or maybe some unhealthy diet, stress, substance use, glutathione levels do decrease and can leave our body exposed. With Glutadose Wellness, you can rejuvenate the cells by adding the glutathione back. Don't miss out on the best of life's moments. You can restore from the inside, build your cells' health up. Glutadose Wellness comes in a unique liquid formula, including 400 milligrams of glutathione plus vitamin C and zinc. Zinc, very important. All designed to raise glutathione levels, boost the immune system, improve skin and overall health. Glutadose Wellness is produced in the USA with the highest standards and best quality ingredients. Now, go to glutadose, G-L-U-T-A, dose, D-O-S-E dot com slash Dr. Drew 2. Use the promo code Dr. Drew 5 at checkout. Again, glutadose wellness, glutadose.com slash Dr. Drew 2. Use that code Dr. Drew 5 at checkout. Have you had a chance to listen to For Crying Out Loud? If not, you have to check it out. For Crying Out Loud is hosted by Adam Kroll's wife, Lynette, and comedy writer Stephanie Wilder-Taylor. These women are hilarious. Listen as they share their comedic views on parenting, marriage, and kids. Lynette and Stephanie are honest, silly, and even vulnerable as they discuss their own experiences as a wife and a mom. You'll feel like you're hanging with your best girlfriends. Listen every week on Podcast One, Apple Podcast, and anywhere you get your favorite podcast. I'm going to take you off music for a second and sure. move back to one of your research areas, which is was my understanding is self and identity. Can you tell me mm-hmm. what you what you got into there? Because that's a area of deep interest for me. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know that I necessarily cited it directly, except through autobiographical memory. So that was one of the things that actually got me interested in psychology to begin with was the fact that, you know, how do we actually construct a sense of self? And, uh, you know, p- part of that w- is in terms of what we remember and how we remember. And, you know, remembering is not a passive thing, right? It's very much an active process and you kind of reconstruct the memory as you remember it. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, that's really uh, amazing that we can do that, that we can, you know, kind of stop time and move backwards in time in our brains by kind of reconstructing memories. But of course, that doesn't mean that we do them accurately, right? So a lot of our remembering is full of all kinds of errors. And those errors are tut or clouded by uh, kind of how we're building this sense of self. Um, so, so that, that sort of what was kind of the more direct research that I was doing is trying to figure out how do we actually lay down these, um, memories for episodes in our lives? Uh, how does different, uh, brain damage affect our ability to remember? And, and then what effect does that have on our sense of self? Um, so for example, patients with damage to, um, the medial temporal lobe, which is the part of the brain that lays down new long-term, um, autobiographical episodic memories, you know, they, even if they just have temporal lobe epilepsy on one side and they have damage to one part of uh of their you know that part of the brain um they actually do have memory impairments for for these kinds of this kind of episodic information and so i was just interested in seeing like well how does how does that sort of affect their their own sense of who they are so do you you ever um hear about clive waring no Uh, okay so he what he is i think he's still alive he is a um a musician in England who had herpes encephalitis, you know, the mm-hmm. viral infection yep. that basically decimates temporal yeah. lobes. Usually hits temporal, the temporal lobes. lobes. So, yeah. yeah, that destroyed his his medial temporal lobes bilaterally, so on mm-hmm. both sides, and left him with a profound amnesia. And essentially, oh, I've heard of this guy. Know, yes, yes, yeah, the, yes. This, the man with the, the seven second guy. memory. Yeah, 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 yeah. famous guy. 
So what's really fascinating about him is that it's not just that he sort of, um, you know, uh, doesn't remember. He also he also gives you the sense that he's he just doesn't have access to consciousness. And so he feels Mm. like like he has this diary that he writes in and basically every single line is uh, it says something like I am now fully awake and then it's crossed out. And then the next line says now I am fully awake and then it's crossed out. And like basically that's his entire existence. And so to me, that's really fascinating because he doesn't have access to a kind of continuous remembering. He he feels totally disjointed from his inner self. Like he does not have a sense of continuous consciousness, which (laughs) which is weird, right? Because we don't generally think of our consciousness as so tied to our memory. Um, But when that cord is cut, all of a sudden we feel as if we haven't been conscious, uh, you know, we we just now woken up uh, as, as the example that he gives. Is it eidetic memory that's the extreme autobiographical accuracy? Was that is that what it's called? Um, well, eidetic, I, I think of it as more like photographic memory, okay. right? Um, so, uh, and like, I, I clearly do not have this. I'm trying to think of the woman that has it. She's a help me, Gary. She's popular. She was in the, the series Taxi. Um, shoot. Does she have highly superior autobiographical memory? Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Where she remembers everything. Yeah, I, so I these patients are really fascinating. I, I had a, I had a, uh, <laughs> interview her a couple times. I'm actually kind of friendly with her. Uh-huh. Mary Lou, uh-huh. Mary Lou, Mary Lou uh, Henner. Yeah, Mary Lou Henner. Uh, do you know who she is, Mary Lou? Is she the violinist? No, no she's no, an no. actor. She's an actress, and she also does okay. a lot of nutrition books and stuff. She was in the series Taxi Got back it. in the 70s. Okay. And uh, she has – and I had sort of a weird experience where – Sort of one of my emotional bottoms was watching her on the Tonight Show in 1979, and I I told her I go you know I had a really strange experience and I I remember watching on this show and she she could tell me every article of clothing she was wearing in that day she could tell me the day of the week it was and she and and could immediately talk about to me about the conversation she had it was actually Jay, it was uh, David Letterman sitting in for. Johnny Carson that night, and huh. she remembered the the whole thing. And I had a sort of vivid memory because it was sort of a turning point moment for me. I just happened to be, you know just happened to be watching it when I was having sort of a, a bottom in New England, and uh, and she could tell me everything about that day, everything. Yeah, so, and so she you're was absolutely correct, absolutely correct you're, on all of it. Yeah, so you're going to love this because okay, so uh, Larry Cahill and Jim McGaw down at UC Irvine I also study these uh, these type these types of individuals, and so they've actually built a, a whole kind of cohort of them. Um, and what they found is that uh, they don't necessarily remember more uh, fr- of things that happened in the last day or two, but they don't forget. Yeah. Uh, so instead, whereas the rest of us forget the majority of things that happens to us over time, right. uh, people with high spirit autobiographic memory don't forget. I, I, I read they, also, they do a bunch of rehearsing too. They like go over things yes. more than is normal, right? Well, yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. And so, and, and they have enlarged caudates. Ooh. Uh, Interesting. Because, and, and so do people with OCD, huh. right? So there's, and they also have a lot of, they score high on the, um, uh, the latent obsessional inventory, you know, the uh, kind of basically, uh, which tracks OCD behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, so essentially they have OCD of remembering and they just continuously practice remembering and to the point where like, um, I think there was a, a this, maybe it was this American Life or Britain, I can't remember, a episode about, um, one of these uh, individuals who was saying that she had a really hard time maintaining social relationships because she could forgive, but she couldn't forget. 
Like imagine, you know, partnering with someone who like can never forget all the times that you did something stupid. Really interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. It it makes it's uh, it's one of the adaptation, the adaptive advantages to forgetting. Exactly. And and that allows us to see the forest for the trees. And so in these individuals, actually, they have a hard time um, figuring out what the gist is or remembering the gist of things uh, because they're so caught up in the details. The specifics. Very interesting. So back to the self function. Do you do you have a theoretical frame for self? Do you think about it? That um, way? I mean, are you, you know, are you a Damasioite kind of thing? Is it that sort of? I, I like a lot of Damasio's work. Yeah. yeah. Um. You know, my friend Lucino Dean too uh, does a lot of really interesting work. She's in the University of Miami. Um. And uh. And and she's she studies like brain connectivity too, and and the default mode and, network. And, and, and let and, me tell you, the, the, I, to add to to pile on to this whole group. You mentioned a book about the insular cortex last time you were in with mm-hmm. me. That was yeah. uh, episode 380. I got it. I read it. Life-altering for me in terms of my understanding of neurobiology. He, that, oh, dude, that dude, that dude is fig- he is figuring yeah. it out. And, yeah. and the fact that it was embedded in the spinothalamic tract was very bewildering uh-huh. to me. But his take on how the, how the insula is put together just made perfect sense. Perfect right? sense to me. Yes. Exactly. Perfect exactly. Sense. So it's yeah, and it, and it makes sense why we have, you know, like so taste, for example, and like so the only kind of emotion that seems to be well localized uh, in the brain is disgust. Everything else is, you know, all you know, all over the brain, all the other emotions. But disgust seems relatively well localized in the insula, uh, which is also where taste is, and like you know taste and you know disgust like these are these are things that we also you know are are part of our core identity like what is it that you you know like when we talk about do you have good taste right it's more than just does it taste good right it's like what is your kind of fundamental aesthetic you know approach right isn't that interesting and how does it exist in one particular pole of the of that nucleus um so he makes a lot about the the pole of the front to back construction of how it's put together exactly Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it, it, it follows all that whole kind of interoceptive awareness where, like, you know, as you go, uh, I always forget if it's front or back. I think you go back, uh, as think, you go back I, to front, I right? think it's back it to becomes, front, it gets more vivid, more clear, more, exactly. more specific. Yeah, more clear and more, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so so it follows the same trajectory. Um, but, so, you know, it's, just, it's like, so, so, interesting. so some of the patients that I studied uh, when I was doing that work on creativity uh, are patients that had uh, one of their first areas of degeneration was the insula and they would lose their sense of disgust. And so they would, you know, they would do things that were disgusting and that we would find disgusting. um, Could they, uh, did they have trouble regulating their emotions too? I mean, not, not the other emotions, not, not initially as much. Uh, So disgust seemed to be one of the first presenting symptoms. When you say Uh, they would do disgusting things like what? Well, like they wouldn't have any problem like picking up their own poop. Right. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, they kind of lose that, that, you know, like, you know, you, or you, you know, you show them pictures of things that are gross and they have no, no they reaction. Don't have reaction. Got it. Yeah. So um, fascinating. Whereas they can still recognize fear and they can, you know, show fear and anger and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But disgust seems to be, uh, you know, one of the first things to go. Is, is your friend that wrote that book, is he continuing to do work in that area of the brain? Yeah, he he was ill for a while. I, I haven't checked in on him for uh, a while and see how he's doing. But um, but yeah, you know, that, that is the I future. Know, I, I'm going to tell you. I'm going to make mm-hmm. a prediction that that's the future because 
when Indra said interoceptors awareness, she's talking about feelings. The feelings come out of our body. That's where when you say you're feeling something, I feel something. My God, my heart, my chest, it hurts. You know, I, I miss them. I feel it in my chest. This is feelings fundamentally emanated from the body. And it, it goes up. I always thought it was going up through the vagus into sort of the midbrain structures. But your buddy has it now coming through the spinothalamic tract up to the insular cortex. And I knew the insula had something to do mm-hmm. with it. And it's where you feeling felt. You feel feelings in this part of your brain. Yeah, your, your subjective experience of, of feelings. feelings which, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. which is like at the very core of, kind of, of everything. what it means to be Of everything. Conscious. Think about it. Yeah, yeah. Yes, of everything. Yeah. And, and, that, and there's an exchange. There's, a, there's feeling felt in an intersubjective context with other people. Yeah. And that's yeah. the core human yeah. experience, I would argue. And so there's still yeah. a lot packed into that stuff that's got to be sorted out still. Uh, and yeah, and I'm going to bet music has some function in there too because the, yeah. the sort of affective charge of everything is sort of processed through the insula, isn't it? I mean, you know, I'm sure it, it, it's activated. We see it in, in neuroimaging activation. Uh, I don't know that we really understand the role that it plays, you know, directly to it. But the thing that I'm interested in, too, looking at the effects of on this area is virtual reality, right? Where yeah. now all of a sudden you're in, you know, your your awareness and and what you where you think your body begins and ends can be so dramatically altered, <laughs> right? Like literally putting yourself in someone else's body uh, yeah. through virtual reality, through just immersive yeah. experience. And what's that going to be like? Like, you know, people talk about trying to deal with some fundamental societal issues like prejudice by putting people in virtual reality experiences where they have to be the other that thing you know the person uh or the group that they have a prejudice towards and like so what is it like right really i mean it it, you could imagine it could fundamentally change a person's beliefs is anybody doing that research I mean, there's people, Jerry Balinson is doing work, uh, you know, a lot of sort of virtual reality stuff. And people are looking at virtual reality and empathy, but I don't know uh, to what extent really it's gotten, you know, mm. it, it's such a hard thing to control in the lab because yeah. there's so many, you know, things. But I, I think people are starting to, uh, and I think people see a lot of the potential for it, right? I think I think that uh, there's a lot of virtual reality work done on people with PTSD or people with specific right. phobias, right? Um, like doing exposure therapy yes. and so i think that's kind of you know that that's where a lot of the focus is right now but i think eventually it'll it'll expand out to other kinds of uh, do you, experiences do you as it, as it pertains to exposure therapies do you share my concern about the trend today for people to withdraw from phobic stimuli and and i'm the word phobic is too too strong that people have to withdraw to safe spaces because they're triggered by things that they should be not triggered oh. by and will only get better if they're exposed. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I, I wonder about that, too, because, of course, like, you know, if, if, if you continue, it just continues the belief that that thing is, you know, dangerous, well, it right? Makes it, it, uh, it, well, not only that. I mean, clinically what it does, it sometimes expands out to lots of things. You can get a generalized oh, right. fear. And so it's it's the fact that we have a society that's going, oh, no, you got to protect them from their being triggered. It's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite yeah. of what we should be doing with people that are being triggered by sort of actually non-life-threatening stimuli. Yeah, but then, like, do, I mean, what we need to do, though, is give them coping mechanisms to deal with the stimuli. And I think that's where we're failing, right? Like, we're not giving them any kind of tools uh, well, to about exposure. deal with. Think about exposure therapy. It's just tolerable doses yeah. of exposure with the presence of a, you know, a supportive other. That's about it. That's what we right, need to do. Right. 
Seems but to yeah, me. Yeah, but you have to ensure they don't have an aversive experience, right? So, right. like, otherwise it, you know, can backfire. Right. And that's, um, that's about where we seem to be going the wrong direction. I just, I just, it just, it's so contrary to what we know helps. That's what bothers me. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, yeah. putting on, uh, so let me ask this. How do you navigate the two worlds you live in? How do you, how do you go back and forth between music and neuroscience? You know, I tend to uh, do projects that uh, hit one or the other. And when I feel that I've spent too much time in neuroscience, I'll put, I'll, I'll, I'll work hard to create a, a musical project and put that on the calendar, um, and 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 vice versa. So, um, so recently, I've been working on this uh, lecture series for the great courses called "How Technology Is Shaping How We Think." So uh, it's twenty-four lectures with a hundred thousand words. Wow. Eventually, I'd like to turn it into a book. Because I think that there's a lot of um, interesting stuff there. Um, but anyway, so we're going into studio to shoot that uh, in a week or so. Um, and so that's been a bit, big focus of mine. Uh, and so I knew that I needed to swing and do a really great creative project after that. So I'm actually coming your way uh, in January. I'm directing an opera called Proving Up um, by this like really awesome composer, uh, librettist, uh, team from New York, Missy Mazzoli and Royce Vavrek. Um, Proving Up is based on this Karen Russell uh, short story. And it's this, it's, it's like 1870s Nebraska homesteaders who, um, you know, it's kind of the, the tragedy of the American dream, this idea mm. of like, how much are you, would you give up to get the American dream? And, you know, it doesn't end well. Is it, is it so, Faustian or... Um, a kind of, like, I guess you could say it's kind of Faustian. Uh, it's more just like a, a dad who, uh, ba- you know, he, 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 he essentially kind of, um, gives up everything, including his own children, like puts his children in danger in order to get, uh, the, to meet the conditions of the homesteaders act. And so, you know, it ends in tragedy. He loses Jesus everything. Christ. Um, uh, so very uplifting, uh, but it's awesome. The music's really great. It, and it's going to be at the Boston court Pasadena. Um, so oh my God. Uh, I'll be in your my, hood. My son yeah, I'll be in your hood. did his senior piano recital there. Oh, it's cool. A, it's a cool, cool. room. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice, uh, it's a nice little theater, well equipped. Uh, so anyway, so uh, yeah, so I'm I'm going to be immersed in that, and so that's that's kind of how I do it. You know, I I I, I sort of the pendulum swings in one direction or another, and I try to try to keep it even over the course of say, you know, uh, if you're looking ahead in like a year or two. Do you have a date on that uh, opera performance? Yeah, so there's four performances. It's January 17th and 18th, 24th and 25th, and it's part of the LA Opera Eurydice Found uh, Festival. So, um, you know, any any of those, there's like a whole bunch of stuff going on, kind of looking at the um, Orfeo and, and Eurydice myth. Nice. And uh, so our opera kind of fits into that because there's a, you know, the young boy uh, who the, the father sends out to kind of prove up, uh, which is meet one of these conditions, goes through this kind of journey into the underworld and doesn't come back. Oof, nice. I want to go back to technology <laughs> and neuroscience. Give me some good beats yeah. out of that because I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about this stuff lately as it pertains to adolescent development. Uh, to me, uh-huh. to me, pornography is sort of the writ large version of it. When I, when I sort of, yeah. you know, it's, I, it's so interesting to me because addiction is such a window into human vulnerabilities as I understand them. And, High, you know, shattering stimuli tell us a lot about emotional regulation and the self functions, and so I, I always think, oh my god, these kids are exposed to porn- exposed to pornography. Average first exposure, age nine, I think now, 
and some of them get compulsively involved with it by the time they're 12. And what does that do to a primate brain? <laughs> and to I mean, some and, extent, and it's, so, it's so powerful, you know, yeah. as uh, pornography. And, and I think the sad thing is, is that a lot of the individuals who become uh, really addicted or obsessed, I mean, would you call it a, a, an addiction? I would. So it's the one, one of the behavioral yeah. addictions is pretty easy to call that because they right. really get lost in it. They really get lost yeah. in it, and and it's not. It becomes to the point where they like they can no longer climax. Like they can't. Oh yeah, that's you know, they, they end up having erectile dysfunction that's because they, it's now. like this wanting. That, that's not even right? just the addicts. That's common in young males. Period. Now, isn't that something? <laughs> right. Right. But isn't it, but isn't it interesting how it's like it, they you know they need they need more and more kind of um, hard uh, stimuli. I'm not aggressive, but yeah. different stimuli yeah. to yeah. then you know that's get the off, addiction. and they end up. Yeah, that's the addiction part. When when they have to. That's the addiction keep, part. Yeah, that's when they have to because it's addiction is progressive. That's one of the features of it. And uh, I see. Yeah, but but people get compulsed around it all the time. And get lost. Yeah, in. and so and, yeah. So are you? And, what, like, really what are you? So what are you modeling? What are the kind of models of, of technology? Are you, are you talking about the screens and the phones and the social medias and that stuff? Uh, yeah, I talk a lot about that, but I also talk about you know the fact that uh, the googling your symptoms is changing your relationship with your doctor, yeah, <laughs> and horribly, uh, horribly. you know I talk about the virtual in not, therapist in not a good way. And not a good way. <laughs> for we the most we have part. my I, my peers have begun to put uh, a, a frame picture up on their wall that says, "Do not confuse your Google search with my medical training." Yeah, which ex- which is exactly right. And people do it all the time. Yeah, um, you know. And I talk about uh, different uh, different ways, like different metaphors uh, of of technology that have informed our approach to the brain, and how the computer metaphor has really kind of uh, set us back in a lot of ways because we kind of get stuck. Aren't, aren't you know? we? Is, is AI ever going to get out of that? conundrum well you know and i, I t- you know we talk about ai in it and it's many different forms about yeah. how uh you know we when when it when people started to actually like this is kind of this is kind of a cool uh, kind of way of, of of thinking about it so you know if it let's say you need to build an ai that recognizes faces well so like one way to do it is to figure out what are the features of a face and like programming in you know this that you know you need to look at the eyes and then you need to look at the nose and you know these are all the features right and when people were doing that uh, they were they failed horribly like ai was terrible at recognizing faces mm. and then they decided to use kind of a more deep learning neural network based approach where you, what you just do is you feed the ai a bunch of data and you say face not face and you let the AI figure out what the rules are, right? So it kind of extrapolates just the way babies do. Like we don't tell babies to look at faces. We just give babies a lot of faces <laughs> and a lot of, you know, kind of uh, reward when they actually, or they're, they're maybe it's innately rewarding when they when they get you know, feedback from the faces. And then the babies figure it out, right? And so babies yeah. can tell a face from not a face. And, you know, even an upside down face versus a right side up face, right? So it's not just the physical features. It's the way they're all coordinated. So... So they well, did but that it's, with it's it's that, that holistic part of our brain and, and body that that is not really it's not digital. Yeah, but we don't know how it works, I right? Know, like we don't know. know how babies actually do it. Yep, that's right. <laughs> so now but, we but have But I know AI. it's not I know it's not digital and I know it's not through having all the available data. Right. There's something exactly, else going exactly. on. Exactly. It's some kind of pattern recognition that is something else. And so, but no, so now we have these deep learning um, AI that can do a great job recognizing faces and we don't know how they do it. <laughs> um, and so on the one hand, that's exciting that we've been able to solve this problem. On the other hand, it's really disturbing because we don't know how they do it. So we <laughs> don't know what biases are built into the model. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and, and like they say, you know, garbage in, garbage out. So if you, if you train an AI and a whole bunch of biased data, 
human data, like historical data, which we know has human bias in it, then what the what the algorithm is going to put out is going to be biased too, right? Like if you think about like giving somebody a mortgage, uh, deciding who deserves a mortgage and who doesn't, if you just if you just use historical data, that's biased, right? You're going to get you know um, marginalized populations who who are who are going to be less likely to get loans, uh, and so you can't you know it's yeah. not that's not ideal, right? So anyway, that that's the kind of stuff that I was been thinking just, about and and sort of the effect. I just think until we have some sort of transistor or chip that works like a neuron because the neuron itself is such a complex processing unit it's almost infinitely complex right well yeah it and has the the capability yeah because of just all the one just just one neuron just one yeah. neuron is is so right. it's it's not a digital switch it's this holistic right. kind of neuroelectrochemical sort of adding unit sort of adds everything up all the forces available and then it has a discharge but it's a it's it's an organic discharge so, so until things are sort of less i don't know what they need to be more cellular i guess uh, it, it, yeah uh, i mean it, i mean it's yeah it's a living thing which means that it changes yeah, right so yeah. it's 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 self adapting um yeah and you know, that's, yeah, that's the part. And then the embeddedness of our, our, our intelligence, it's embedded. Yeah. It's embedded in a body. Yeah. It's embedded in a, in a context. Everything's, everything about us is embedded and we just don't seem to be able to take that in when we're building the AI. And I, I know the guys that think it's just strictly about accumulating data, you know, it's just, I, I just don't see it. I just don't get it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, until you can get the AI to have an experience, right? It's like, well, it's, you know, it's, I, yeah. yeah, that that I'm sort of hoping doesn't happen, <laughs> but <laughs> but 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 I I've, until it's more holistic in its processing, right, and less digital, right? And I don't and I don't mean analog, I mean holistic, because that that's mm-hmm. you know just to people are familiar with this stuff, you know, the thinking fast, thinking slow models. I think not nearly. I just listened to a podcast today on Econ Talk. Where I think that's what it was. Yeah, Econ Talk, where he was talking about uh, gut gut feelings and how mm-hmm. how how deeply accurate they are, particularly in terms of predicting the future. It really is highly. It uses simple heuristics that really let you build a model for the future. While most of the models we use when we're trying to model stuff is built on the past. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this, this difference between unconscious and conscious processing, right? The last fact time, that the majority of what our brains do. Yeah. Last time you heard we talked about uh, that. Yeah, it was my last fascination. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. And, well, let's, yeah. let's go back to music as it pertains to that. How much of what's going yeah, on in music so, is beneath consciousness? Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of it is actually below the level of, of consciousness, which is one of the reasons why it's so moving. Like, sometimes we just don't know why it is that we find a, a piece particularly moving or, or, you know, how it taps into our memories. I think that's one of the other things. It's like this kind of this weird thing that can tap into unconscious uh, remembering and just give you that gut feeling. It's, uh, it's I mean, like, this is why it's, it's so very, important in movies. It's very right? similar. Yes. It, 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 we literally say it creates the mood. It puts us in that's a right. mood. And, but it, it, it reminds me of, even though I feel like it's different, the olfactory system. Yeah, well, yeah, which has a direct link into your, you know, um, episodic memory, <laughs> right? Right. Uh, as opposed and, to going and, through the thalamus and a bunch of attached emotions, right? Yeah, that are yes, evoked, exactly. Right. So I, I think yeah. it somehow has something similar. Well, listen, I really appreciate you coming back and spending time with me. I just enjoy talking to you so much, and I'm glad we had a chance to push out how music can make you better. Get it uh, all the usual places, right? 
Yep, absolutely. Amazon and uh, listen to Cadence also on iTunes if you want to. Uh, is that going to expand off how music can make you better or is it different topics? Yeah, than well, that? so actually the second ep- uh, season of Cadence was what inspired how music can make you better. That's what Chronicle, Chronicle, uh, my publisher, uh, that's what they, they wanted, inspired them to, to publish the book. And now I'm about to release the third season, which is about how music influences us. So, you know, Ooh, everything from like the kinds of music that we should compose for our cats to, wow. you know, music in prisons Oof. and how, uh, how it's like one of the most coveted privileges for prisoners to be able to go and make music. And are you advocating so, for more of that for them? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, anything to make their lives more manageable. Interesting. It's going to be the new, what, light green color that they tried to paint everything that was going to make everything better. <laughs> so <laughs> whatever that was. Hopefully more effective. And, and Exactly. <laughs> and then we'll look for you in the great courses. Do you know when that's coming out? Uh, sometime in 2020. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, I appreciate spending time with me. And is there anything else we need to review have we said it all no i think we're good and uh and and yeah i hope to get to see you again oh absolutely and, and in the meantime everybody go to inquiring minds there's just a library of great interviews there and y- you get a sense of how interest interest minds works and she is just constantly you're in pursuit of the truth which i which i love which is in, in short supply these days you're trying to use your scientific training to get to a get to truth and, uh, yeah, I, I'm just I, like in, in, infinitely curious all the time. Yeah and, yeah, and there's a lot of stuff that's sort of out there and stated as sort of uh, empty slogans. And she goes at it and says, "What's you know, what's the evidence? How do we figure this out? How do I, how do we make this true, or is it true or not? How do we analyze it?" A lot of the things you're talking about, I sort of feel like that's where your your head's at. Am I, am I wrong? No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, so. <laughs> all right, uh, thank you so much, and we'll see you next Thanks. time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.